What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Welcome to Movie Crush, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Movie Crush Friday Interview Edition, another long-distance edition, here with my friend, Brandon Reynolds. Hello. Hi. Hello, Chuck. <laughs> How are you, sir? I'm good, man. We started to catch up for a minute uh, off mic, and I was like, dude, there is no off mic in my world. That's right. It's all recording <laughs> all the time. How are you doing? Oh, we're very well. Uh, we're in Los Angeles, California, and... Um, you know, I think we'll be the last state to reopen, although the mm-hmm. be- although the beaches are reopening. Um, but you know, Janet and I we work from home, and for the most part, and so there's been the weird kind of disconnect of everything is normal in the house, and then as soon as you go mm-hmm. outside, uh, right, it's a weird apocalypse of people <laughs> strolling. It's a lot of strolling with strollers, strolling with dogs, and then everybody has masks. Yeah, so you mentioned Janet uh, for the uninitiated listening at home. Uh, Janet Varney is your uh, life partner? That's right, fiancé. We're all fianced. Oh, okay. You guys are engaged? Yeah, we have been for a minute. Did you tell me that? Probably. Probably. I don't know if you did or not. When did you guys get engaged? Oh, it's been a year and a half, maybe. (laughs) We're so, I mean, we're so... um, you know, we, we're not wedding people necessarily. So, okay. you know, she was like, during this whole thing, during lockdown, she was like, let's just find somebody online. and That get seems it very Janet. Doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll schedule it between a hike and some work that we have to do. <laughs> well, congratulations, dude. That's great news. Thank um, you. Today is actually my 14th wedding anniversary. Congratulations to you. Thanks, man. Uh, and how are yeah. things there? 
things are good. You know, we're uh, a lot of family time there, uh, you know, working with uh, with Ruby around is challenging. Speaking of which, Here she come. just walked in. So I've been letting this happen occasionally. Yeah. She'll say hi. And then I'll boot her. Come here. Say hi to Brandon. Hi. Hi, Ruby. How are you? Can you, you can't even see. Uh, there, there she is. is. Brandon says hi. Hi. What are you drinking? A little chocolate milk? You never get chocolate milk. What a nice treat. I know. Did mommy get you some of those? <laughs> you can barely even talk. That's the kind that's the kind of enjoyment that kind of ah that I remember oh, from yeah. wine coolers. <laughs> like when you're a kid, you're like Suck. I can hear him because I have on headphones. But you know I gotta boot you out. Can you say hi to everyone listening though? Because they like hearing from you now. You got you can't wave, you gotta say words. Hi. <laughs> You want to tell everyone what you watched since this is a movie show? What kind of uh, show you watched today? You don't want to say? Mm-mm. All right. Well, then what good are you? You want me to say it? I can't remember the name of it. It was a cartoon about outer space that was supposedly educational. So uh, we, we're trying over here. Oh, but wasn't <laughs> we're trying our Fantastic best. Planet. Was Fantastic Planet the one with all the nudity, <sighs> that weird 70s psychedelic <laughs> Forbidden Planet. Forbidden Planet. Yeah. All right. See you, kiddo. Bye. Brandon says bye. Bye. Can you yell bye? Bye. All right, shut the door. <laughs> uh, all right, so that's happened about every movie crush episode. Uh, let me put up my sound panel that she just knocked over. Uh, I have not been letting those get through for stuff you should know, though. Yeah, yeah, you got to maintain standards. She's not in the union. <laughs> exactly. She actually, we had her on a segment. Uh, Emily and I have been recording some of these, as you know, and. Uh, we had Ruby down to talk about Frozen and Frozen mm-hmm. 2. So yeah. she's a she's a part of the fabric of the show now. So anyway, what I was saying was you and Janet are getting married now, which is great news. And that's mm-hmm. how, I don't know if you, and I don't expect you to remember when we met, do you? Yeah. It, I remember. Um, yeah. At uh, the bar of. Uh, Look at you. What was that bar? Well, was, I can't was, remember the hotel, but it was yeah. for LA Podfest. Yeah, for Podfest. Yeah. Oh, well, that makes me feel good because Janet uh, usually people don't remember me. <laughs> Janet had rolled out the red carpet of praise for you because she loved you so much and was so excited to oh, nice. get to hang out with you and that you and I would get to meet and hit it off. That's right. And then we did. Yeah. So, because uh, I was going to be a guest on her live JV club and was. Mm-hmm. She dashes in and, you know, Janet at these events and every event, she's usually got a lot going on. And uh, she came in with you. I said hi because I had just met her, too. And she said, I'm so sorry. I've got to go. This is Brandon. You two will love each other. (laughs) And I was like, let's get a drink. That's right. (laughs) And it was great. We had a great first conversation. And uh, you're one of my favorite people ever since then. Well, you're one of mine. We um, I remember when. We were in uh, Atlanta when Janet was shooting Stand Against Evil. Was this last? Mm-hmm. I think it was the year before last. But, you know, we like to walk. And uh, and even Atlanta summers aren't going to slow us down. And I went to meet you at the at your oh, favorite place. Oh, that's right. Yeah, we went to like, breakfast. Yeah, it was a multi-mile walk. It was, and I was just sweating. And then I can't remember what I got to eat there. But it was, uh, that was a great, that was a great experience. Like, just like, I'm going to go yeah. meet an old friend. And all I have to do is trek across. <laughs> I remember when you told me you, 
you walked and I, I don't know if you remember the expression on my face and I was just like, wow, that's a long walk. Uh, yeah, it, it you know, Atlanta is a good neighborhood strolling town to be sure, but, uh, people don't walk, you know, eight miles to get somewhere. <laughs> it was, it was one of those. It's the same in LA. We'll walk all over the place and, um, and you move through different, not just neighborhoods, but like geographies like, oh, this is clearly a part of town that's built with a whole other thing. And in LA, yeah. Um, uh, so much of it is about the car anyway, that like you really mm-hmm. do feel like an ant walking through these spaces that are just not human. But but now yeah. they are. You know, Now people are like, oh my gosh, this sidewalk hasn't been used in 50 uh-huh. years. It's kind of nice. Yeah. Uh, Emily and I used to go on some great walks when we lived in LA and we always, um, and this is true for anywhere, but you, and I know you know this, you, you get so much you notice so much more when you're not flying by something in a car mm-hmm. and uh, especially in LA with the architecture and how the houses are kind of stuffed in there. We would always just find these little hidden homes that you never noticed that were really cool. And we're, uh, as you guys are big into uh, houses and architecture and, and little details and stuff. And so I think, I think walking is a super awesome, fun thing to do like that. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. The, the houses particularly because, there's just no rhyme or reason to why somebody built this thing next to that thing. And, yeah. um, and so, yeah, you really get a, it's become kind of a meditative thing anyway. Like, well, and we just sort of build it in. If she's got a show, you know, somewhere we'll go, we just build in another hour and a half to get there, you know, and yeah. that becomes part of the journey. So also if she has to go do something on stage, <laughs> there's, there's an entire line of wardrobe for, um, that's very specific. The Venn diagram of you're very active, but also uh-huh. you have to perform. So it's like, you know, things that wick sweat, but also have a nice tie feature, you know, or something. So oh, so she would stuff. actually wear on stage what she would walk in? Often, yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, my Lord. I could, uh, I would have to bring probably three t shirts. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. Well, it's, it, you just, you control your, uh, your endocrine system as much as you can. That's what it's all about. <laughs> just endocrine training. Yeah. I know you guys have legendary endo- endocrine control. <laughs> yeah. Our reputation precedes us as far as our glands. So uh, I know where you're from, but for the benefit of listeners, where are you from? And I, I want to hear a little bit more about sort of um, while this movie, Ace Ventura Pet Detective, is most certainly a movie of your youth. What were some of the movies of your youth aside from this that you felt uh, impacted you? Um, you know, one that I really thought about and have thought about a lot as a kid that, I, you know, we would rent it over and over at Blockbuster was The Last Dragon. Did you see that movie? It was the like, last dragon. That was, was the spoof. It was. A, it was. It was like it, it was a kung fu movie uh-huh. in Harlem, uh, right? Barry Gordy thing, and um, and I loved that movie. I loved all the kind of kung fu karate type movies, but that one really stuck with me for some reason. And um, and when I think about stuff that I was just renting over and over, uh, the last dragon was one of them. Uh, Voltron. The cartoon movie I liked a lot. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. And then, so my stepfather, um, uh, who's a total nut in a lot of ways, he's also a big film guy and has this insane encyclopedic memory of not just all the movies he's seen, but like the day he saw them in the theater, even if it was like, you know, oh, I saw wow. John Wayne's first movie at such and such a theater, you know, uh-huh. on a Tuesday in 1959 or whatever it is. 
Yeah. Um, anyway, so he would always bring all this crazy stuff into the house. And so he, you know, he, he had a, a videotape of Reservoir Dogs and like nobody had heard of that at that point. And so yeah. my friends and I, this was in high school, we all became Tarantino devotees like very early on and we would all get together and, and, um, and watch that kind of stuff. So that I had just sort of a similar experience with Reservoir Dogs. A friend in college turned me on to it. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those movies that like you bring it over and you're like, oh, we're watching this. Can you do it right now? <laughs> and it, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it was college. So it was like, yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Uh, and yeah, ever since then, Tarantino. I have a love-hate relationship with him now, but uh, those early films, just mm-hmm. every single one of them got me. Yeah. As far as this being a thing to think about, like this is a film that is about stuff and you need to, you know, consider it. I don't know. And also being kind of a, I mean, I look at that stuff now and stuff that really was exciting to me. And a lot of it was somewhat to real violent, even though I wasn't mm-hmm. that violent of a kid. It, it, there was those threads of that stuff that fascinated me. Um, then now I look back on with a certain degree of discomfort. Um, so you said you weren't that violent. You strike me as not violent at all. Did you yeah. get in fights and stuff? No, no, no. Um, cause you're big. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and when I, when I do get angry, I'm extraordinarily cruel. So no, uh, <laughs> no, I, um, I think there was a, a part of me that was an angry, you know, suburban kid. Hit. My this par- is Texas, right? Mm-hmm, San Antonio. Yeah. Um, my parents got divorced when I was four. And, um, and, you know, they get along and they get along very well now. They're friends now, but, um, but yeah, that was, that had, and I, of course, you know, I realized this years later, um, Uh that that was something that I sort of wrestled with in a weird way. And then also having, I have a younger brother who's autistic. And while that was the norm that we sort of existed with, Uh there were all these stresses that just didn't exist external to the house. Um, but that I found, uh, and again, looking back on it now that I'm out of the house and now that, um, that it doesn't, that I have some time to reflect on like, what was going through my head at that time? You know, if they had, if they had meditation apps back then, maybe I would have figured these (laughs) things out much sooner, but, um, but yeah, no, I didn't get in any fights, but I, I did, I would, I would have a sort of quick temper and, you know, get into verbal things with friends. Yeah, Janet uh, had a divorce early in her life, too, if I'm not mistaken, right? Mm -hmm. I think the same age. I think also four. Wow, that's crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, no wonder you're getting married. That's right. (laughs) No, I mean, it does explain, I think, in part why we were so hesitant to do it earlier in life. You know, I think we had a very um, skeptical view of that. And yeah, not because, yeah. and again, you know, not because like our parents were jerks or we didn't get along with them or anything, just like kind of, well, kind of, I think also for us sort of a little bit like religion, like, well, clearly this is just not for us. So, right. so yeah. what else? And then, you know, and then you find somebody and all of a sudden those things click, you see a version of it in which it can right. work. And, um, and then everything else falls by the wayside and you're a giant hypocrite, but at least you're one in love. <laughs> that's sweet yeah how did you guys meet i don't even think i know that um i was the uh editor of sf weekly mm-hmm. in san francisco california and and you covered Sketchfest. and i covered Sketchfest. yeah wow yeah um for a couple of years you know we would work with them and do like a comedy issue uh-huh. and i would go and do like profiles of the comedians and one year we had a bunch of comedians write 
you know, essays about ones who had connections to San Francisco, right? Essays about it. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, for a while, Janet was, you know, we were just emailing like business, you know, it was just this little, it was just a, a two line or a from line. And, mm-hmm. and then one year, um, as it often happens, you know, these things sort of all uh, come to a head where we did finally meet um, and, you know, became fast friends in that sort of way. Like I was going to shows and and she would sort of dart in and out and then, uh, during the festival where she doesn't sit down that much. Um, yeah. And, uh, and then we just became friends that way. And it sort of over a period of time went from there. She was still in L.A. I was up here. Uh-huh. Um, uh and so yeah we were friends for a while and then we both ended up in a window of singleness um at some point after i had left the paper and so i really was it really was kind of one of these where all of the things were changing at once for me i don't know if you do you ever have you ever had those where a bunch of unrelated things all of a sudden change at once and it's like oh clearly that was a chapter that's ending and this is a new chapter, new job, yeah, new place to live, yeah. new relationship. You know what that is? That's God's hand at work. That is God's hand at work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And that's why we're no, but, just now. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is interesting how alignment has so much to do with how things work out in one's life. Uh, some people might call that divinity or fate or whatever, but I just kind of call it alignment. Mm-hmm. Um, dumb luck, maybe. <laughs> I like that but, term. Yeah. Yeah, that can that can be the difference in why people end up together. It very oftentimes is. Yeah. Well, and I think, too, about, um, you know, you can run into somebody in the grocery store and have that spark or, you know, any number of ways, all the ways people meet people. Um, but I think for us, there was something satisfying in that we were both meeting, doing this thing that we loved that was unconnected, but just sort of happened to have this one yeah, uh, moment of crossing and, you know, rather than, you know, nothing wrong with dating on a website or anything, but, um, but that it felt like it was, yeah, it felt like it was more reinforced by the fact that we didn't have to step out of our normal patterns. Like this was, we were sort of hurtling toward each other in that, yeah, in that sense. And that was very nice. That's, yeah. That's very sweet. Uh, and you were, Writing, uh, I think you have a pretty interesting uh, career story. You were writing for SF Weekly, but you also have done these great um, sort of deep dive articles for magazines where you would go and live crazy places and really kind of throw yourself into an experience and then write about it, which is, I think if you're a writer, uh, that's one of the romantic notions of writing that not many writers get to do is, you know, the a single man in Antarctica, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, doing a job for how long? Was it Antarctica was one of them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was on, um, I went with the Coast Guard. They have an icebreaker that sails from Seattle every year called mm-hmm. the Polar Star. And it sails down to McMurdo Station um, in Antarctica because that gets iced in. And so it has to break this channel in the ice so that resupply ships can come in and give them a year of food and fuel and then so cool. take out their trash. And so um, when I was in San Francisco, um, I, I had read a story that the ship came through every year and it was dry docked because it would get beat to hell going through ice, you know, for months and months. Uh, and I just thought that's so fascinating, even more so because it's the only one the U.S. has. Like there's 
no one wants to put any budget into building a new one. And right. <laughs> and so they just kept re re retrofitting this one they had and it was like 40 plus years old this you know from 1976 this thing uh and anyway so the whole process to me was fascinating when you think about like Russia had one has like yeah. 40 of these we had one so I was like I want to ride with them down to Antarctica and see what that's like <laughs> and, totally and uh you know and so that was one of those where I wanted to do it and no one publishing wise was that interested in it there was it was uh-huh. always something that made it not that interesting to people but i don't know why i was just so fascinated by what this was going to be like and what the people on the ship were like and what they thought and all of that stuff so it turns out the coast guard is extraordinarily reasonable i wrote to them and they were sort of like yeah okay <laughs> come on <laughs> come on yeah you got any heart problems not that i know yeah of. Climb on i imagine board. they're <laughs> the most accessible uh of the armed services. Yeah. Yeah. They're very, um, they're, yeah, they're like, you know, kind of cool sailor types. But I, anyway, so I was on the ship. I met up with them in, um, Australia and sailed with them for 54 days down there wow. and then back up the coast of, uh, Chile. And then I got off in Chile and, um, yeah, it was great. And there were all these, there's a handful of other, like there was a national geographic team that was on there and some scientists and, you know, some random Navy divers, everybody kind of had, um, their various motivations, but, um, that's but yeah. so cool. But I'm working on a book about it now, hopefully. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. There's no, you wrote, you wrote the article though, right? Where was that published? I wrote, oh, right. So KQED, which was the, um, public radio station in San Francisco, which actually had been the place that published the initial story that got me into it. Uh, they ended up doing like a diary. I mean, I wrote a diary, sent it mm-hmm. to them while I was underway. So I wrote, series of i think eight stories for them and then a thing for the seattle weekly because that's where the ship lives uh so you know stuff was sort of scattered here and there and then Mm -hmm. there was just so much about antarctica as this political place you know like it's this kind of politically idealized situation that you know eisenhower and all these guys in the late 50s um didn't want russia to get at it so they're like okay we have to create a scenario in which no one can own it and at the time, right. it was 100 plus years of people fighting for ownership of this thing. It's um, crazy. And so they ended up coming up with this document, the Antarctic Treaty, which is this extraordinary piece of political theater, essentially, but one that everybody continues to invest in and believe in, where it's like no nukes, keep the environment pristine, no one can own anything, all research must be shared, anybody can inspect anything at any time, protect the wildlife, right. all this stuff. And, you know, if there's any mineral discoveries, like, that has to be shared. And uh-huh. all of this was designed to screw the Russians at the time. So all, wow. that, all that became very interesting to me. And, you know, if we go into space and discover other worlds, I feel like this is sort of a model for that. Oh, totally. I never really thought about that, but it's kind of the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's very far away. It's very hard to get to, even though it's just kind of right around the curve, so to speak. Um, what can people find that online? Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, if you do a search for Brandon Reynolds and KQED, it's kind of the one and only thing I did for them. Uh, Okay, cool. So what other, uh, what, what is another like favorite project of yours that you've written, uh, beyond that's not like screenwriting stuff. Cause I know you're doing some of that now. Sure. Um, the last big thing I did, well, my career has been entirely 
kind of local or regional publications, alt weeklies mainly, and then some mm-hmm. you know, San Francisco magazine, LA magazine. So a lot of it is about very specific places. And um, the last thing, I think it was the last thing I did for Los Angeles magazine. Uh, I have an editor who's this great editor. He mm-hmm. went on to go work at NASA. And I would always come to him with these pitches, like, I want to do a thing about suits of armor or, you know, pillows or something. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he'd be like, that sounds interesting. What's the story? Uh, and then he would send me back and say, find a story. And then you'd find a story. And we'd go from there. Um, but then he said, hey, I want you to write a story. And I said, what about? He said, about trees. <laughs> Which was so strange coming from him because he usually is like very specific. And I said, well, what about trees? He said, I don't know. You'll figure it out. Um, and so that launched me into this whole thing about the history of Los Angeles's trees. And, oh, wow. And the fate of the trees. Uh, all of which is, of course, connected to every other part of Los Angeles' cultural, political, business life. And um, and that was, you know, speaking of like walking all over the place, uh, finding out about the trees not only made me look at the trees differently, but also uh-huh. the decisions that had been made to build the city in the way it had. And the fact that the city... Unlike old cities in Europe, you know, Los Angeles and a few other cities in the U.S. evolved along with the evolution of the car. And so it was uniquely right. sort of car-based. Um, and then and then they would sort of wedge these trees in. That's why, like, pine trees, I mean, palm trees are the trees they use because they're like, we need something that's narrow but dramatic. It's got to mm-hmm. fit between the curb and the sidewalk. Um, so anyway, I did this whole thing about how the fact that the trees are all dying because of climate change because of changing water table and and then how the city will have to evolve um, kind of its relationship to trees, basically if it wants to survive in any significant way, you sort of invest in trees and that mm-hmm. takes care of a lot wow. of the, the, the issues with climate change and with one of the things that's going to happen in the future here is there'll be hotter summers and wetter winters. And so the city does not have any kind of capacity for flooding. Right. Uh, I, so, I remember that. So when it rains, uh, it becomes really bad. So if you have trees, they have roots, and so they absorb that. So it really, you know, there's often stories that I'm interested in, write them, and then move on. But this one has continued to stick with me and has turned me into something of a, a tree, kind of a tree freak. So when you walk around now, are you just constantly looking at trees still? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you know, awesome. and, and, you know, it's also a reflection of class, like where there's a lot of trees that tends to be where there's more money, the types mm-hmm. of trees like magnolias are big out here, even though magnolias have no business being out here, they take too much water. And so they'll all eventually right. go away. Um, yeah. So all that stuff, you know, it just sort of becomes uh, superimposed on the landscape of what you look at as you walk around. Dude, what's the name of that one? I'm going to read that myself. That one's called, uh, the dramatic headline is, Can L.A. Survive the Death of Its Trees? I think. All right, I'm going to read that tonight. Yeah. Because that's right up my alley. I love trees. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. All right. It's great stuff. And there's, yeah. There's some surprises in there. Oh, but then there was a whole other thing that didn't make it into that story that I want to spin into something else, which is about all these animals Mm -hmm. that only live in cities, that have evolved to live in cities. Like there's something like 42 species of fly they found in L.A. backyards that don't exist anywhere else in the world. Really? (laughs) Just these particular trees. Nobody knew. They put these traps out for these flies a couple of years ago. I think USC did or maybe UCLA. And 
And they found all these flies they were catching. They're like, what the hell are these things? And then they would, you know, gene test them. And they were like, these are not related to anything anywhere else, but kind of to each other. Right. So you find these speciations within uh-huh. cities. You know, we think about like raccoons and coyotes and yeah, yeah. rats and stuff are all very um, city specific. But then birds and other things just sort of look at the city as another ecosystem. So anyway, uh-huh. that's another thing I want to do a story about. Once I figure out, again, what the story is, rather than here's something neat. Right. That's why uh, I love hanging out with you and Janet, because both of you are kind of science nerds. And both of you pay attention to stuff. Uh, and it's always a good conversation, like whenever I'm hanging out with you guys. So um, yeah. I look forward to reading about the flies. Yeah, that's somewhere down the road when I get around. So you're still doing, well, I didn't know you're still doing that kind of stuff because now you're dabbling in screenwriting, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. With Janet, we have uh, written one pilot that we sold and that's now in another phase of there's all these, you know, there's, it's like a writing on scripts for anything in Hollywood. is sort of like, you know, a, a, a caterpillar becomes a butterfly, but this is like a caterpillar becomes a slightly fatter caterpillar. And then it goes into <laughs> another thing. It goes into a chrysalis. that's entirely built by uh, exec executives. And then you come out and you're like, I didn't want these wings, but now I've got them. It's a really strange process. You really have yeah. to you have to ride the thing, but um, yeah, we've worked on a few things. Uh, we've got kind of a couple of show ideas that we're kicking around. One's a cartoon we're very excited about. That oh cool. Um, that a friend, a journalist friend, actually brought me from San Francisco. He said he was working with an artist up there. He said, "Hey, you want to work on this cool thing?" So that's yeah, that's all been very satisfying. I mean, I got into journalism from fiction anyway, so it was very uh-huh. easy to go back to making stuff up do you have a novel in you do you think um yeah actually yeah one that i have been thinking about for a while and now have really settled down to write is uh based on um the strasburg dancing plague of 1518 uh yeah you familiar with this totally yeah there was like a month in the summer of 1518 where all these people in strasburg started dancing many of whom died as a result. Yeah. And um and that's a, that I have sort of thought of as a weird family story cuz all my life my dad's always told me, "Oh, we're Alsatian, we're Alsatian." Cuz there was this colony of Alsatians that came to uh-huh. Texas back in the mid 1800s. And I never knew what that meant, you know, if you're Irish that means something or if you're German. Right. Whatever, you know. <laughs> what is Alsatian? What the hell even? does it mean to be Alsatian? I don't know. Yeah. You know, you're just divorced from any kind of cultural connection so i always thought that was fascinating and then i look into it and i'm like okay so alsace which is now part of france uh was important because it was a killing floor in world war one and then back in the 1500s all these people danced themselves to death so i thought okay there's just some great stuff that's written about it and um and i think particularly when you think about like how fears manifest in like this day and age um and a thing that can become a plague or a mm-hmm. pandemic that isn't physically a pandemic, but it's just right. manifested by fear. Anyway, so that's one of those things. And I'm like, I think people are going to love to read this, but everybody's, <laughs> no, we want more. I will. We want more bad news. Yeah. What it was, is the novel actually set in that time mm-hmm. and setting? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's all that the sounds characters. amazing. Because there, there were people who 
I mean, and, and so much of it's satiric anyway. Like there were these conversations going on in the early days of this thing where they would debate based on the dancing, whether uh-huh. whether a devil had caused this or whether right. God or one of the saints had. And I right. feel like based on like, well, that hip shake looks devilish. But on the other hand, that, you know, that kind of one, two, three step is is very saintly. They didn't know who they were being punished by because mm-hmm. the church was so corrupt and the poor were extreme, extremely poor. The Black Plague had come through. There were all these harvest problems. Um, you know, and these people just lived these lives where they didn't know who to trust. And so their answer was to go into this essentially fugue state that was yeah. that defied all endurance. You know, they would dance for days and days and their feet would bleed and they would yeah, collapse. Yeah. Then the city was like, you know what? The solution to this, the doctors were brought in. The solution to this is let's get musicians and play for them. And then that, of course, made it worse. I don't think I knew that part of the story. I know we covered this somehow on Stuff You Should Know. It mm-hmm. might have been one of the video series or something. I don't think we did a whole episode on it. But um, I remember some of the explanations, which you probably can't get into as a novel set in the current time. Because that's all sort of looking back on doctors and scientists going like, what the fuck actually right. was happening? Um, but I think I remember some of them being like, or maybe I'm thinking of uh, the uh, Enlightenment, like being bad bread, moldy bread mm-hmm. or something. I don't, Ergot, I don't think that yeah. was this. Ergot. Yeah. That was one of them. Yeah. Oh, was it? There was the thinking that, you know, people got into some wheat that had spoiled and this chemical, uh-huh. which is related to LSD. But- it wouldn't have lasted a month, you know. You have right. convulsions and hallucinations and you get sick, but nobody's doing that for a month. So that's one that they have continued to throw out over the years, uh-huh. but it doesn't really hold up. Seems like it was mass hysteria. That's crazy, man. What a cool story. Yeah. Yeah, I'm excited about that. But again, that's one of those, you know, I don't know if it, it you know, there's a sense of like, do you want to escape from what the yeah. hell's going on or do you want to think about it more intensely in a slightly different way. So I think I chose that one. It's like, do you watch Contagion or do you not watch Contagion? Exactly, yeah. That Contagion, like everybody wants to see that. We haven't seen it. For Janet, mm -mm. she's like, no, I don't need it. I don't need any more reminders. Yeah. What um before we move on to Ace Ventura, I would love um I always try to glean insight as a fellow writer, uh, and then for our writers in the audience, what what your process is a little bit like, whether or not you write every day, uh, discipline-wise, and what you kind of do with writer's block. Oh, sure. Um, I do write every day. Um, I try to... I think one of the things I've tried to do during the pandemic is to be more rigorous about the non-paying projects, you know? Like mm-hmm. I like I do stuff for the radio station here, Um and that's kind of been my more usual thing. So, you know, I'll go do reporting on Zoom and that sort of thing. Um, and so there's these jobs that that will take time. And so trying to really justify in my own mind, like, this is worth writing down because it's important to you. And right. you need to make time for it. Um, so that's a big part of it. I usually have kind of historically always had a handful of fiction idea things going at any given time. Uh-huh. And so, um, so as far as writer's block, yeah, if I'm working on something that stalls out, then I'll just shift. Get something on deck. Yeah. Try to. Yeah. Yeah. I never thought about that. I seem to be kind of, uh, pour myself into something and then 
I've been a bad writer for the past like three or four years. Um, but when I'm when I get going in a groove, uh, uh, writer's block just doesn't happen. Uh, it might not be good, but I enjoy the process, so I don't labor over it too much. Yeah, uh, not a lot of hand wringing for me when I'm in the writer mode. That's great. I have a good t- I have a good time. But um, it's been a while since I've kind of taken something on for fun. I should I should do that soon. I love the uh, script that you wrote that we kicked around. Do you remember that? Oh yes, <laughs> the, <laughs> the the lighthouse movie. Yeah. yeah, that was that was sort of an exercise because I had never written a, a thriller before. Um, no, I'd written scripts, but they've always been comedy, and um, mm-hmm. I'd never gone down that road. I think that one could be okay with a lot of work. I liked uh, it. I liked it a lot. A lot of work. Thanks, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then Eggers went and made The Lighthouse, and after that I was like, well, yeah, he, yeah. He, he just made an awesome Lighthouse movie, so what's the point? Yeah, that's true. you got to think of what's another building that has a beacon purpose, you know? What's another oh, tall dude. Building, you know? No, trust me. It's um, when we started getting into fiction podcasting, and dramatic podcasting, my my boss asked me if I had anything laying around, and I was like, you know what, this lighthouse could mm-hmm. just as easily be a, a a station on Mars, yeah, or the moon or whatever, because uh, it's sort of the same thing. It's just the whole premise is a, an isolated location, yeah. Oh, um, yeah. so it's it really could be easily retrofitted for for outer space. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> You're going to rake in all those big outer space bucks, the sci-fi crap. Yeah, man. Yeah. yeah sci-fi dough. Uh, all right, buddy. Well, that was fun. And let's let's get into Ace Ventura Pet Detective. Yeah. I feel bad. I should share with everyone the text exchange we had. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, we were texting last week and I said, think on the movie. And at one point I got this random text and you said, Ace Ventura Pet Detective. And I kind of laughed. And then I think two days ago or whatever, I said, so I really need to know the movie. And you went... That was not a joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then I immediately had to say, am I making a terrible mistake? <laughs> um, and the caveat here is that Ace Ventura is by no means my favorite movie. Uh, it has aged excruciatingly poorly. And it wasn't that great then. I mean, it was, you know, <laughs> there were just so many unfortunate qualities about it that it, um, that just make it bad. Like the, the women are written very poorly. There's a whole homophobic thing that is mostly yeah. to the third act. Uh, yeah. He's sort of obnoxious almost the entire time. You know, there's there's a bunch of things that absolutely don't work and that really are the sort of product of a kind of a 90s like yeah. gag writer sensibility and then like sort of an all or nothing like we're gonna put this guy carrie out here and just let him do what he does and see what happens see what america thinks and america yeah america loved him america did love him um so this film was released in 1994 uh directed by tom shadyak do you know his story a little Uh, bit a little bit i mean i know when i was living in virginia he did one of his later movies bruce almighty bruce uh no bruce yeah which was the one he did with Noah? Was that Evan? That was Evan. He did Evan Almighty. Oh, okay. Uh, outside of Charlottesville, I think. And the thing I remember was that he had invested a bunch of money um, in buying trees and planting trees. And there we are, back to yeah. trees. And so I, I sort of knew after that that he was sort of an environmental type of guy. 
but not not much more than that. Yeah, so it's pretty interesting. He started out his career as a comedy writer. He was the youngest writer uh, for Bob Hope, uh, joke writer that he had ever had. Hmm. And that's where he got a start. And he, you know, went on and did Ace Ventura was his first movie and did some of like Liar Liar. He and Jim Carrey did a few things together. But uh, he had this bicycle accident, had post-concussion syndrome uh, in a really bad way, like the kind of deal where you stay in a dark room for a couple of years. And uh, it it changed, obviously changed his life. So he was sort of a hippy-dippy guy anyway, I think. He sold his mansion in L.A. He made a document. He opened up a homeless shelter in Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, gave away most of his money, made a documentary called I Am, which was about, apparently it's not very good, but it's about how much the world sucks in so many ways and how to change it. Um, Gave away all his dough and his material possessions and then eventually recovered and now is a uh, teaches film at the University of Memphis, Hmm. but kicked Hollywood uh, in the rearview mirror and was just like, I'm done. Uh, kind of one of these weird life-changing stories because of a bicycle accident. And does that make you feel more warmly toward Ace Ventura or its byproducts? It so it's byproducts. So here's my, I think we should talk about our history with this movie because um, you're younger than I am. This came out when I was 23. I was in college so it was a little below, and this is when I was working at the cool video store and just getting oh, turned yeah. on to like independent <laughs> film and like the the uh, best of, of film and uh, really opening up my eyes to that. And this was a little below my, I, I mean, it was a movie that was made for adolescent boys. Yeah. Um, I imagine in 1994, half of Americans, like 12 to 14 year old boys dressed as Ace Ventura for Halloween. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Were you one of them? Yeah, that was it. No, <laughs> I so, knew it. so that was one of the weird. So, yeah, I would have been 15, I think, when that came out. Or, yeah, 15, say. Yeah, and, it's kind of right up your alley there. And um, and so there were a number of things that clicked um, that would not have clicked in a even slightly older person. Like the fact that this person's behavior is obnoxious at the time. You're like, yeah. I mean, one of the things was if you're not a sports guy uh-huh. uh, and you're kind of a weird kid, like to have a hero who essentially is like a noir detective, except instead of noir, everything's bright and Miami uh-huh. colored, um, who is a total weirdo and a jackass, but is always right and somehow uh-huh. gets the girl. You know, yeah, all yeah. of that stuff really resonated with me. I was like, okay, you know, you can be a weirdo. And unfortunately, uh, I think I took, you know, some of the lessons of loudness and animation and ran with that for quite some time, much to the chagrin. You know, my stepdad, as I said, he was a film guy. And just, I mean, that was like the antichrist to him, like Jim Carrey. <laughs> and for years, to this day, he still makes fun of me as a Jim Carrey type. But it, uh, it so there was that. And it did. It turned me on Hawaiian shirts. I dressed as Jim Carrey. I mean, I dressed as Ace Ventura that year. And then went on to collect Hawaiian shirts to this day. Really? Yeah. I mean, you know, the styles have changed. But I became... I really liked him. I don't know. It's, it, you know, and I had uh, like 70 at one time at the end of high school. Um, 70 shirts? 70 shirts. Yeah, that my mom <laughs> threw away. She said, it looks like a rainbow threw up in your closet and she was done with them. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so there was there were a lot of things that, 
as stupid as it was, it, it still managed to speak to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, man. I'm, I'm, if I went back to movies I loved when I was 15, um, there not many of them were very good films, you know, yeah. that's if you're a discerning film fan and, and sinistre at 15 years old, then you're a rarity. Yeah. Uh, but that doesn't matter. That's sort of the joy of this show in a lot of ways. Um, for me, Jim Carrey, I watched in living color and I was mm-hmm. a fan of that show. And I think what I had to wrap my head around with him was, and especially with this role was, um, Concentrating on the funny parts, which there are tons and tons of genuinely funny, amazing, physically gifted comedian parts. It was the in-between parts that bugged me. Um, Him always like not rendering a single line of dialogue that wasn't over the top. I think there's one line in the movie I noticed today when he goes to Courtney Cox's house and he has one line that's just like, I can't even remember. It's just like a greeting where he's not doing the Jim Carrey thing. And I was like, Oh my God, right there. He, he did yeah. a normal thing. Mm-hmm. But I imagine as a 15 year old, it's like all you're doing the next day at school is walking around and mugging. talking like that. Yeah. It's just mugging. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, it was so seductive as a, as a way of behaving, you know, like, and, and I, you know, I think it's, it's also not a coincidence that I, um, I've always been interested in like the tricksters and, you know, this kind of Mm -hmm. characters, like the one who's, you know, maybe not the hero, maybe not the villain, but some kind of weirdo that can, you know, step outside of society and, you know, change it. I don't know. I don't know what I was thinking. Somehow, (laughs) somehow Ace Venture did all that (laughs) crap for me at the time. But, you know. It's it's amazing. Yeah. And I, you know, I liked it enough and, and I liked the sequel too, uh, When Nature Calls. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you could barely say it with a straight face no, i know well you know janet was sitting in here because she'd never seen it and i think it's the part where he talks with his ass and uh. and she's like okay i was like this is a big this was a big part i remember this was oh, one yeah. of the critiques they leveled against the thing uh-huh. i mean you know there were many things to be critical of but when he talked with his butt that was i feel like you know you reach a certain age where as a critic or just somebody who's seen things uh-huh. And you're like, this is a sign that civilization is on the way out. Like this is yeah. it. And I think for for you know Roger Ebert, he was like, this, oh yeah, this is the ultimate crap garbage. Uh-huh. He's talking with his butt. Okay. Did well. That was such a. I mean, if you talk about Ace Ventura, and you saw the movie back then when you were fairly young, let's say, one of the first, like that's an. It became an iconic part of that movie. Kids were talking out of their butts yeah. for uh, for a year after that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. To the dismay of their parents, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. at the dinner table, kids probably talking back to mom and dad bent over through their asshole. Yeah. This adult man, this adult <laughs> Canadian man can do it. Therefore, you know, and we're worried yeah. about violence and sex, you know. I know. Seriously. But really, like Al Gore, <laughs> Tipper Gore, she should have gone after the, the ass contingent. What uh, <laughs> what did did Janet finish the movie? No. Did she walk out after that <laughs> she, part? She said, eh, "Maybe I'll see the rest of it later." And she it, well, we were watching it late the, at night, so she was she she was entertained by my combination of reflections on it and the uh-huh. fact that I can still quote it pretty much verbatim. Sure, yeah. 
Um, it's funny because I don't know Janet to be a liar. She's a very honest person. And for her to say that she might finish it later is the biggest lie she's ever told in her life. <laughs> <laughs> I think she will. I think as a what? as an anthropological study of me <laughs> as a young man, I think there's something to it. Right. And um, and so there's a whole other element here that that I don't know that I would have brought this up as this influential film if not for this thing, which is that as I said, I have, I have an autistic brother, right? He's two years younger right. than me, and he loved it. You know, like his communication is is especially then was quite a bit more limited. Yeah, and you know, and so like stuff, so much stuff would just not connect with them movies and tv and other yeah. people um but jim carrey has a preternatural ability to connect because i think he's so big and yeah nothing is left on the you know nothing is nothing is subtle nothing is implied and so my brother immediately started quoting jim carrey stuff and does to this day as a matter of fact and um and i when i was in grad school i wrote uh, a thesis graduate thesis on the condition my brother has is called fragile X, and um, and I was talking to this researcher at UC Davis, kind of one of the world-renowned researchers. Uh huh. And just offhand, I had said something like, "Oh yeah, my brother likes Jim Carrey," and she said, "You know, they all do." She said, "Really? He? Yeah, he's yeah, he like has an ability to oh wow connect with you know. I imagine autistic people in general. I don't know that for a fact, but uh-huh. she said that she would anecdotally talk to parents and that their kids." After that came out, and after the mask, which my uh-huh. brother also loved, um, that yeah, that something about his manner and you know maybe the the subject matter. But since they also love the mask, it, it's something fundamentally to him and to that uh-huh. that style of performance, that very big clown clown like yeah. style of performance. And um, and I think it's so interesting that he ended up with Jenny McCarthy, who has an autistic kid. Oh, that's right. I mean, she's a wingnut who doesn't believe in yeah. scenes, but, <laughs> but I think that was the luckiest kid, right. To end up with Jim yeah. Carrey who, you know, has this ability. But anyway, so that's, that's a big part of why it continues to be relevant. Like it was, it was developmentally important to me. It was right. developmentally important to my brother. And it's something, in fact, Janet hasn't seen, hadn't seen the movie before last night. But one thing that she says to my brother all the time, which he started saying to her, a year or two ago was we're going downtown. And so Janet says that to my brother now, Brian (laughs) all the time. And then when that showed up in the movie, her eyes went wide like, Oh, that's it. Oh man. That's really sweet. Yeah. So that connected with her right at the beginning as he's kicking a box of broken crap down a hallway before he steals (laughs) a dog from Randall Tex Cobb. Yeah, dude. I mean, that opening bit is so funny and it really, um, it really establishes the tone right away. And you got to hand it to a movie that that knows what it wants to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that Jim Carrey developed this character uh, very closely with the director and with his with his other uh, writing friend, uh, Bob Odekirk. And and he was like, listen, uh, there's there's two things that has to happen is I've got to be able uh, I've got to be able to take this as far in the in the ludicrous direction as I can. And let's just see what happens. People may hate it, but I've got to go 100%. And and Ace has to be good at his job. Yeah. And I never really noticed that until I read that this morning uh, after I watched it. Uh, he he is good at his job. It's it's You got to pay attention and sift through it. 
But he, it, it is a noir detective story, and he does solve all the cases. Uh, you know, there's the one main case with the dolphin, obviously, but um, he, you know, it opens up with him getting that dog, and and you know, he tricks the guy in, in the most elementary school way possible. But it's it's a cartoon, you yeah. know, is what yeah. it is. Yeah. And that opening bit with the box establishes that tone, and it's fucking hysterical, especially yeah. the hallway bit. It's just so over the top when the elevator door is closing on the box, yeah. and and you're thinking, like, how much more ridiculous is this going to get? And there's the one moment in the hallway where he's kicking the box, and he's doing all the little funny moves, and he puts the box down on the ground, and he stops, and he jumps up in the air, and he thinks he's going to smash it. And he splits his legs over it, and then picks it up with his feet. And it's just a very small little moment, but it, it's it's genius. It's yeah. so unexpected and funny. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The uh, Yeah, the physical comedy, Janet did say, you know, she, she managed to get her barbs in. Before she <laughs> before she went to bed, one of them was like, "You can see why the French liked uh, uh, Jerry it? Lewis." Jerry Lewis, yeah, yeah. Like this is our Jerry Lewis, which you know was either a, a compliment or a critique that was leveled <laughs> at him at the time. But it is true, you know, like the the clowning tradition is so yeah, um, is so unappreciated in you know, which is not to say that I'm endorsing clowns. Or, <laughs> or you know, Ace Ventura as a competent body of work, but uh, but no, I do I do think that one of the other things I liked about it was, and you know, again, maybe being a teenager, you hope like you're right about everything, and the fact that he didn't change at all in the course of the yeah. movie, he didn't have to, right? The world had to change to accommodate this guy's worldview and. This, you know, like it had as weird as it is that it would it like dined off of these gay jokes and and these like transphobic jokes. The yeah. fact that the message was ultimately about like kind of a weird acceptance, uh-huh. you know, like accept weird people and strange people and different people because they may have something to offer. Maybe I'm giving it way more credit than it deserves, <laughs> but that's you know that's art. I don't know. Um, uh, yeah. One of the other parts, um, and you know, I'm going to talk about a lot of my favorite bits, but uh, as far as just going for it, like the blowjob scene right after when he brings the dog back for the reward to the to the buxom rich housewife or whatever, and you know, she she drops down out of frame. That could have easily like he could have just gone like, and it could have still been over the top if he was just like, oh oh my god, oh my god, and it could have been silly, but the decision to to grab hold of the <laughs> the buttress above him and to swing around like he's being attacked by a shark kind of reminiscent of the later scene when he's attacked uh it was just so like it had to go that far i think yeah oh yeah yeah he didn't there's a thing that he says you know about like spitting when he realizes he kissed a man like he wanted it to be so intense that no one mistaked it for reality weirdly you know like i think he was doing what he could to offset any kind of homophobia um which in retrospect sure um yeah but but also there is something to be said for you you can't go a quarter of the way or halfway or even 90 percent of the way if you're going to do a movie like this right and you know that scene is homophobic of course and transphobic but it's uh it's funny and he you know he 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 goes for it and i laughed today (laughs) yeah yeah everybody spits oh my god it's it's 
It's such a it's uh, well just, that part too. Yeah, that's pretty bad. But even when I saw it at the time, I was confused. You know, I was like, wait, it's such it's such a weird plot device anyway that I can only assume because it nods to the crying game that it was like that's yeah. how we do it. The killer. How do you hide the killer in plain sight? You know, right. The, and so if the the go to is like it's a different it's a different sex. We'll have Sean Young. Right. Poor long suffering <laughs> Sean Young. It's gonna be I know. a formal football kicker who went crazy <laughs> because Dan Marino may have held the laces wrong. It's also absurd. Yeah. It really is. And what's funny is is like I think this movie was you know, it got hammered by the critics and a lot of people probably look back and say you know, it started Jim Carrey's career, but boy, what a, what, what a sort of bad movie in some ways. Had it been, I think there's certain people that can get away with sort of this sort of absurd humor under the guise of like, hey, we know we're being absurdist and uh, we're really highbrow, but we're smart enough to do absurdist humor. I don't think that people view this that way because it was Jim Carrey. Right. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Did you um, see it when it came out? I did. I'm trying to remember. I don't think I would have seen this in the movie theater, but I was racking my brain today trying to recollect my first experience with it. But I know I remember laughing and I remember being annoyed at, uh, I was trying to figure out Jim Carrey. Right. Because he was still young on the scene. And I was like, who is this guy? Like, can he act? Yeah. Uh, and, And it turns out he can. And he's shown that again and again, but, you know, he was making, this was his first big movie. Like he, he didn't know how to do anything else yet, I think. Yeah. Or he hadn't built up the currency so that Hollywood would allow him to do anything else at this point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was such a, it really seemed like an all or nothing. Like, well, I have to do all my impressions. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just overstuffed with. And that's one. I mean, I think now if they released some version of that now or if it was made now, you know, if it, that was Will Ferrell or something, there would be the version where like here's right. all the outtakes, here's all the crazy crap he did that we didn't get to see. Here's all the other times he talked with his butt that uh never made it in, you know. Yeah, and I think if this was made today, I think there would be some really ham-fisted character arc and and uh mm-hmm. something that ace would have to learn and become a better person but i kind of had my hat off today to them just saying you know what we're going to make a really silly sophomoric film for f- 14 year old boys and we're going to we're not going to alter it we're not going to cuz this movie would have been worse if it would have had some ham-fisted ace learns things about himself you know yeah. no one wants okay. to see that yeah it would have felt dishonest to the absurdity, to the <laughs> to the childishness that they were trying to <laughs> capture. Yeah, and I, you know, I was trying to think of what was around that time. You know, was there anything that informed that in movie making or TV or anything? I mean, I guess there was stupid stuff. You know, that like now, like I think nowadays, if I thought of stuff that a thirteen-year-old likes, that to me seems insane, you know, maybe it'd be like Minecraft mm-hmm. or, you know, like these games, it would be a game, probably a game that right. has, you know, absurd noises and colors and a plot that, you know, I have to work to understand. But, um, so I, I always keep that in mind when I feel flummoxed by cultural developments this day and age. Right. Like, <laughs> I love Ace Ventura. So 
You know, nobody's perfect. There's always something. It's funny because knowing you, I mean, I feel like I've had so many good heady conversations with you and about uh, the world and people and science. And uh, when you threw this out at me, I was like, that's why I didn't believe it. It wasn't like, this can't be someone's favorite movie. I was like, this can't be his favorite movie. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I, um, I really did have to think about, you know, I was, I was wanting something from when I was a kid and, and that one just kept coming back to me. Yeah. I would say, you know, but I would honestly say, and I thought about this today, if, if it was, you know, best overall, it might be Eternal Sunshine, which is also Jim Carrey. Oh, yeah. You know, it's, I've already yeah. covered that, though. Yeah. No, that's why I'm glad I didn't do it. Because I looked <laughs> and that was already covered. Um, then The Mask. Then The Mask is my favorite. Not Mask, but The Mask with also Jim Carrey. No. <laughs> no, The Mask was 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 pretty good. I mean, it, it was another... Um, I mean, that early Jim Carrey stuff was really good. It was before... Uh, I think before he felt like he needed to shift gears and I I love the gear shift he made in his career, but there's something really pure about when he was younger and just concentrating on being Jerry Lewis or being the clown and certainly one of the most physically gifted uh, actors ever, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, nobody, nobody can do that even still. And I find that, you know, as I watched it a bunch of times, you know, the things you enjoy are not the plot points or, you know, any of the mm-hmm. big stuff. It really is those little micro expressions and like him squeezing yeah. the box with his legs. Like it becomes these really, really precise moments. I mean, with him and with anything that you love enough that you watch it a lot or read it a lot or something, um, it really yeah. does. It's like you just become so granular in the things that continue to appeal to you that they're not, they're almost not even conscious you know the things you like i mean i was thinking about that like certain expressions he made like he would freeze in one particular way Mm -hmm. for example when he was in the mailbox and he was holding the guy's hand and he had the jeweler's loop and the lighter and he's got Uh this squinched up face which is it's an it's kind of a beautiful shot it's really kind of wonderfully lit but it does look sort of painted and you don't see him make that particular face at any other time in the yeah. movie and there's these weird one-off faces he makes that that feel like their own kind of thing i don't know and so stuff like that i'm like yeah oh, yeah there's always this sort of sense of enjoyment when i see that one thing <laughs> no i totally agree i mean this movie there are certainly all the big i kind of like talking out of your butt and all these big moments that everyone remembers but if you pay attention there are also there's so many little small moments filled with little bits of comic genius that uh, that you know were important to him. Like he he worked really hard on this role. Yeah. Uh, he didn't go in there and fuck around. Like uh, there are stories about he and Odekirk staying up till like four in the morning, just writing hundreds of jokes hmm. and working them out and whether or not they would work for the movie. So it's not like he was like, yeah, you know, I'm Jim Carrey. This is a throwaway for me. I can go in there and just kind of be myself. Like he worked really hard at this film. And I think those small moments... Or when you notice that, it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that's good to sort of also be reminded that he was a craftsman, that even though this looks slapdash, improv insane, yeah. you know, that no, there's, there's, it takes a lot of control to, and planning to have that, um, have that sort of effect on yourself and to yeah. produce that kind of thing. Yeah. Which I mean, I, yeah. I don't know that I even, still can see like oh that's clearly a joke that he saw coming before 
it came mm-hmm. out of his mouth. You know, I assume like they were just shooting a bunch of stuff. Yeah. And then they, you know, in the editing room, they found their story. But it, kind yeah. of, it does kind of make sense that he's an <laughs> obsessive perfectionist. Yeah. The, the, um, a few of my other favorite pits that I still laugh at today, uh, like laugh hard for, for a 49 year old man <laughs> is the, uh, when he's, when he's walking through the, uh, the the suicide of the uh, of the football team, oh, oh not the owner. What was he? The um, he's the oh yeah, he's the uh, manager maybe. Yeah, manager. but he was ex- when he was doing the big Scooby Doo explanation of why that was impossible, yeah. and he goes to the door at, with the double soundproof glass. There were there were a hundred ways to do that that wouldn't be as good as what he did when he you know when he booms his voice out and slams that door back and forth so forcefully it, it and it just it kills me every single time that one part it's just so great yeah and they let it hang out there and uh-huh and that's the other thing that i think is smart about it because not everybody's crazy like so you know uh, courtney cox who god bless her she she really yeah. <laughs> she really stiff up her lipped it through this thing um but you know they they treat him as a crazy person like they don't they're like uh-huh. us, like that's a weird thing to do. And so you see when he's doing that, that there's that pan across all their faces where yeah. they're irritated about it, but have to admit that he's right. It's this, you know, it's this transitional moment where, oh, now I see that he knows things, sees things that other people don't see. <laughs> and his celebration <laughs> is to do this weird staccato opera aria. Thing. Yeah. Oh man, it was so great. Uh, and, the sound, and the sound design in that one part too, it mm-hmm. just works so perfectly. The other big line that kills me is, and my brother-in-law, he is a uh, a two-star general in the Marine Corps, and uh, he, I don't know if he's ever seen a war movie. He's hes one of these guys that, and I, I think he, people might think of Marines as like, yeah, man, let's watch Zero Dark Thirty again, but he doesn't want any part of that. That's his day-to-day life, yeah. like real shit, so he loves this kind of stuff. Right? Um, the silliest Jim Carrey movies. He's like his comic idol hmm. and you will not like be able to experience joy than watching a movie, a Jim Carrey movie with him because <laughs> he, he just turns into a kid. And the line that I, it always reminds me of him and we always, and I will still say this when I see him and he cracks up every single time is I'm looking for Ray Finkel and the clean pair of shorts <laughs> with the shotgun right in his face. Yeah. That line is just so like the timing of that line is just so great. And the fact that he didn't say like, I shit my pants, like, and a clean pair of shorts. is just brilliantly executed. No change on his face at all. <laughs> Somehow all of that bodily movement happened without yeah. the expression. Yeah, that was <laughs> great. Right. The way that thing slid out and just pops him right in the face and he, no blinking, no nothing. It's great. Yeah. It's it was great. wonderful. Uh, and of course the, um, and I think he became sort of well known for this part uh, was the slow mo and reverse mm-hmm. motion bit in the hospital. Uh, it's just how can anyone look at that and not recognize like the the genius of someone being able to do that with their body realistically like that? Oh yeah, yeah. My best friend Kurt in high school, who he and I would feed off of each other quite a bit, and he was also very big and rubber faced and. Um, for our senior talent show, 
we did the last scene from Macbeth where Macbeth and Macduff have it out um, and then did it in reverse and then did it in slow motion. Oh, really? Entirely as a result of that, I'm sure. We (laughs) thought that was the coolest thing. So we had this whole fight scene all choreographed. And, I, you know, I don't think we timed it out, but it was like all these parents, you know, and families. And, you know, some kids were like playing the cello and whatever. And then we come and we do this like 15 minute debacle, just the end of Macbeth. <laughs> you know, like nobody knows what's going on. They think yeah. one guy's against another. And then this elaborately choreographed sword fight that we were just sure was the right thing to do. Uh-huh. And people did, they cheered, you know, but we'd like, we would do it in, yeah, we did it in reverse, the whole thing backward. And then in slow motion, some of it. Uh-huh. But it really, looking at it now, it's like, if you're a parent or just anybody in the audience, you have no idea where this is going to go. How long it's going to go on. Right. (laughs) Um, But I did. I was very inspired by the physical comedy of that. And like watching him reverse, Uh like because he smashes into the, his face smashes into the doctor and then rolls Uh off. And then the way he reverses it is almost flawless, like right back into the same thing. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was the genius of that scene is, was it looked totally real. He wasn't, um, I, I mean, I didn't see you and your friend do your version. But it was probably not as spot on. <laughs> Is that fair to say? <laughs> I think that's probably fair to say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, that that whole uh, sequence at the hospital has a lot of funny moments. Um, when he's in the hallway and he collapses to his knees and smashes his face mm-hmm. on the bench, um, it's just so like I know he hurt himself a lot in those early days doing some of this shit. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and it reminds me of of Jackie Chan. I don't know, I've been thinking about Jackie Chan movies lately, like the ones like Rumble in the Bronx and kind yeah. of those early ones, which are amazing. I mean, they're just amazing. Totally. Um, you know, but not terribly different than this in a lot of ways, as far as, you know, this yeah. this intense physicality where the physicality is the kind of the point of the thing, you know? Uh-huh. Um, and so, yeah, that and he also, when you said that, and I was reminded of the fact that Jackie Chan also hurt himself all the time. Oh, yeah. During his yeah, movies. he... He, the evil Knievel of uh, of action movies, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and the 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 final bit that still gets me to, even though it's the culmination of of all the bad third act transphobic homophobic stuff, is when he's doing the big Scooby Doo ending again, and he's trying to uh, trying to show uh, Sean Young's body. It still gets me, man. <laughs> the way he does it when he rips her shirt open and then just starts sort of maniacally laughing. And then he goes, well, that kind of surgery can be done over the weekend. And then he goes <laughs> behind her. And I still don't know what this means, but he goes behind her and he rips the skirt off. And he says, what about big old Mr. Kanish? <laughs> what is big old Mr. Kanish? What is that from? Do you know? No, I think that's, I think that's sweet generous right there in that moment. I mean... Uh, no. Does it come from something? Who knows? I mean, a, a knish is a thing, right? Yeah, it's a sausage. That... It's a sausage. Oh, okay. So it's the penis. Well, that. <laughs> well, never mind. That explains it. <laughs> I think I. Knew, I think I didn't know exactly oh, what a okay. knish was. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now I think it's even yeah. funnier. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I feel dumb and like validated somehow all at yeah. once. <laughs> yeah. And that's the point of the movie, I think. To feel I think dumb. So. To feel dumb and to feel validated for feeling dumb and not to feel bad about it. But that whole scene is ridiculous because in if in reality, if you step back and look at it, he's taking this woman's clothes off. He's pointing at the body parts 
And then Dan Marino in the background, you notice it says, you know, he's telling him because he calls him over and he's like, you know, she's tucked it under. Yeah. And they <laughs> kind of do, do a football huddle, you know, like Ace sort uh-huh. of turns into it. And sort it's of so dumb. And he peeks over his shoulder. You can't yeah. see. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they wanted the big finish and they were like, Sean Young's going to have a dick. That's that's the finish. Don't you understand? That's the big reveal. Oh, man. But I did, you know, I had seen, um, uh, oh, what is it? I saw uh, the, the, what's the Elliot Gould, uh, Raymond Chandler one? The, oh, uh, the Long Goodbye? The Long Goodbye or the Big Long Goodbye, yeah. The one that. Um, uh, the Long Goodnight? Long Goodnight. What was it? Was that it? Yeah, I get that one confused with the Gina Davis one. It's the one I think that Robert Altman directed. Anyway, um, once I saw that, I was like, oh, okay, so there's a whole tradition of like weirdo, quirky detectives, yeah, you know, sort of navigating the space. And it's about how right they are. Like they're always the rightest guys and the whole world sort of against them. Oh, and they're also, you know, like poor. I, and didn't really pay attention to the fact that until I saw it again last night that like they really make a big point about the fact that though he's very smart, Ace Ventura is poor. I mean, he can't pay his rent. Right. I mean, he he's spends got the a little lot beater. of money. He spends a lot of money, presumably feeding these animals. Which now that you've seen Tiger King, of course, it just seems right. inhumane as hell. But, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, like oh, he's he's not doing well. He's not succeeding, despite yeah. the fact that he's you know, which I guess makes him more of a kind of a, a sympathetic figure like oh he's not he's not doing this for the money <laughs> no well that's kind of true though i mean that um they make it clear from the very beginning how much he loves the animals yeah uh and he's yeah he's he's clearly not doing it for the dough yeah that scene at the beginning is great when he when he jiggles the keys and goes in there mm-hmm. and when all those animals come out like that's on 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 the page that's just written in a script is like all of a sudden that the room is flooded with animals and that could have been it, but him getting on one knee and, and singing and looking up like snow white, like mm-hmm. that's what makes that scene work so well. Oh yeah. Yeah. Just the posing, <laughs> getting all those animals to sit still. There's a raccoon yeah. over on one side that's like clawing <laughs> at the bird's tail feathers. You uh-huh. just, you're like, Oh, they had like seven seconds to do this before everything went crazy. You know? Oh yeah. They couldn't I can't imagine. To sit still. And I love that. I just love that about it. And then in the second one, not to jump forward too much, but you know, then there's a big loss at the beginning of when uh, when nature calls, which is I a, don't remember. Well, if you remember the beginning of Cliffhanger, the Sylvester Stallone <laughs> movie, it's that right. except uh-huh. instead of a love interest, it's a raccoon who uh, they're going right. from one Swiss Alp to another, and <laughs> the harness breaks, and the raccoon plummets to his death. And then Ace has to go into a monastery because he's so rattled, and so he's pulled out of, you know, his monastic uh, exile to solve one more case, which is an albino bat. I believe that's right. Mm-hmm. I, I saw that one once. I saw uh, the first one quite a few times, admittedly. But I think I only saw When Nature Calls the one time. It's not. Um, in some ways, I like it more because there's some of the stuff in it, some of the bits. I kind of feel like are a little more refined. That one was directed not by Tom Shadiak, but by uh, Bob Odekirk. So he did Oh, it. right. So that one was you know somewhat closer maybe to 
the core spirit of the thing because those two really put their right minds together on it and that one part of it was filmed <laughs> in texas uh in fact our family had this ranch outside of san antonio that you know like had been in the family for generations the alsatians um had passed this thing down and um the neighboring ranch this is one of these wild game ranches where you know like hunters from houston will pay fifty thousand dollars to shoot a water buffalo and so right. it was just stocked with all this african game that you would see like driving around in the middle of the Texas hill country. Here's this wow. fence. And then there'd be Ibex and zebras and stuff just right over there. Holy and, shit. Yeah. It was so weird. But one of the African villages they put, they filmed there and they put it. And so we would like go driving through and go along the game fence and you could look out over this hill um, in the middle of Texas. And there was just this little African village that was there for years before they took it down. And it was from Ace Venture, how any of that came to be, I have no idea. But, <laughs> but it was. It, I bet. Uh, I bet your brother thought that was pretty cool too, huh? Yeah, he loved it. It, it was a, you know, it all resonated in this way to tell me, like, oh, these are the right films uh, for us in some kind of cosmic, cosmic way that yeah. I that I now decades later have to defend <laughs> some of them, <laughs> some of the things. But you know, you're right. The the funny stuff is funny. Uh, it, you know, because it's stupid, but then, you know, if you, you're really there to see, if you like the, the athleticism and that physicality of all that, that's the thing that you're there to see. Like everything else is yeah. kind of incidental, um, or entirely incidental, but yeah, that, that, that talent, which again, nobody else really has. I mean, nobody else does that. There's no, yeah. there's kind of like Weird Al, you know, there's, there's one Jim Carrey who does that thing, and he even he doesn't do it anymore. Well, I guess he did do it in. Um, he was kind of re- rejuvenating that in Sonic, which I didn't see, but I got the impression he's back to some of his old tricks. Did you see that? Yeah, I have not seen that, and I forgot that he was in that. But yeah, he did come back and kind of do a a more uh, Jim Carrey like thing, right? Yeah, it seemed like yeah he was the kind of the big villain. Um, doing a lot of you know a lot of crazy face stuff and he's up against a cgi hedgehog so right he really has to push it yeah (laughs) well and at his age you know yeah that's right it's it's seriously though it's easy uh i mean it's never easy but uh for him to do roles like ace ventura when he was i mean how old was he was he in his 20s i was wondering about that too yeah i think he was do you have this thing where when you see a movie when you were younger, that person always seems older? Like I look at that now and I must be older than he was every then. time. And I'm, I'm like, obsessed yeah. with doing that. Yeah. Isn't that weird? Even now. It doesn't matter who it is, but like, you know, you watch, I don't know, name anybody in any movie mm-hmm. and you just, you can't shake that impression that, that yeah. even though you know they're younger than you are now, somehow they seem older in that thing. Yeah, I've talked about that on the show before. I'm obsessed with doing that is is saying, "Oh my god, I am the age of Marlon Brando when he played The Godfather." Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and granted, um, they aged they aged him up, you know. They made they made him an old Vito Corleone, but um it it's still hard to like reconcile some of that stuff when you start getting to the age of mm-hmm. Indiana Jones and some of these people that you saw when you were a kid that were just old as hell to you. Yeah. Yeah. I don't recommend doing it. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, I avoid it whenever possible, but it certainly it comes up in old movies, I think more. Like we were watching um The Conversation the other night, you know, and Yeah. And you're like Gene Hackman has never looked young. I mean, he could never no. look young. And I and I think in that he was I think he his character and the actual actor were my age now. And I was like, there's no way. There's right. no way. He's got like 20 years on me then. People lived harder back then. Totally. Maybe we should, uh, you should come on again and we can talk about the conversation. Yeah, I'd love to. <laughs> what a great movie. That one was so strange. Well, and you know, in that whole late 70s style of filmmaking where it's just, it's not informed by any of the decisions we make now. It's kind of like you were saying, you know, they're not necessarily as worried about like tucking in, uh, you know, somebody's got to learn something here and this and that, right. you know, some of it. Less formulaic. Yeah. Yeah. The storytelling, there's just these like emptinesses in it that, mm-hmm. you know, are about the atmosphere or in that case, the sound design is so much like you follow it through what Walter Murch did. Um, yeah. Yeah. We should talk about that one. That one's definitely one of my favorites. Well, you should have fucking picked it. <laughs> <laughs> is it too late start over burn this it's too late it's too late i don't late. want anybody thinking that ace ventura is my absolute favorite movie uh but i do want them to know that it's formative for better yeah. and possibly worse <laughs> yeah well dude this was great uh i knew that we would have a good conversation about it no matter what because you're you and um and you can come on again. You, you, I have repeat guests now, so I would love to do this again. Anytime. This is great. And it's great to see you again. I feel like this is the way people connect. Yeah, man. Through video screens. It's, you totally. know, it's something that we didn't, we sort of eschewed before. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I did and Janet did. And, Same here. And now it's like, oh, you know, it actually is kind of nice. Like friends that live across town will have game nights with. It's like, well, we would never see them otherwise. We just never see them. So this is. Yeah. And uh, and we want to plug uh, her stuff too. She's been doing um, with our friend, uh, our mutual friend Ben Acker, the uh, and Paula Tompkins, and so many other of our mutual buddies. But they've been doing the thrilling adventure hour again mm-hmm. uh, at home and virtually, and that's been fantastic. Yeah, that's great. They um, that's such an interesting feat of engineering all of these people on their various Zoom accounts, like. Totally. Watching them do the rehearsals for that and then actually executing it. It's, yeah. It's really impressive. And, I, you know, and then, of course, they sort of start to become more and more ambitious about what can we get away with. Janet has to do costumes. She has to dress up for it. Um, yeah, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> she did. And so that, you know, that's been, you know, there's some hope in that, oh, there are new forms of creative expression or whatever that. that yeah you know, maybe they'll stick around. I'm always wondering like, what's going to be the thing that, that breaks through, you know? Yeah, I do too. Um, I think this reboot, it's almost a reboot for humankind in a lot of ways. And, um, not to get too sappy, but you know, we can do better. And, and hopefully some of these, uh, you know, neighbors are sharing things. And, uh, I don't know if you're on like neighborhood pages or on Mm -hmm. uh, social accounts like that. Like, people are bartering and exchanging and sharing and stepping up for one another. And it's been really cool to see. And I hope that stuff stays. That'd be really, yeah. I told uh, my co-host Noel on the mini crushes. If, if half of humanity ends up 5% better, that's a big change in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's so many things like air quality, you know, and we should plant trees and seeing people walk around Yeah, and, um, you know, thinking about and feeling 
sad at the idea that things would go back to the way they were. Like the machine, yeah. the machine is shut down now. This is the time to change parts out. This is the time to improve it because it's yeah. much harder when it's in motion. And um, and you know, you you hope that that people will take advantage of that and be like, oh, I like this new version. See through all the awful shit and yeah, and sort of grasp onto the stuff that we would like to change. Dude, what a perfect way to end. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. It's great seeing you. I love you guys. And uh, hopefully we'll see each other soon in person and we can share a whiskey. Absolutely. I would love that. Take care and kiss all of your people out there. I will. See you, buddy. Bye. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual.